You're listening to the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. I'm your host, Arden Cartret. This space is meant to be a tool for you to feel less alone and to learn more about how to get through what you've been through and what you're probably going through. We'll hear diverse stories from women and men in the online space, experts, and people just like you and me who are feeling the effects of miscarriage and loss in real time. This is the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. My dog might walk by and you might hear her little, her claws clicking. Um, I have a water bowl near where I'm sitting and sometimes my dog comes and drinks out of it while I'm recording. Only when I'm recording. It's like they know what's going on. But I really appreciate you being here and, you know, being open to sharing your story. Um, I found your Instagram page and just kind of felt like, I don't know, I felt like compelled to your story in the way that you talk about miscarriage and Specifically, I think what caught my eye was the miscarriage highlight that you have on Instagram. Just like, you're just like, I'm just going to show you guys what miscarriage looks like. And I think that that's, you know, it sucks that that had to be done, but, um, you know, that educates people and that normalizes it. Yeah, definitely. I really think that's part of the reason why I did it Um, was because of one, I'm like open, but weirdly open. Like on Instagram, I'm super open, but sometimes personally, if people come up and talk to me, I'm willing if I know them, but otherwise I don't know if I really want to talk about it. But I also hate having like the awkward silences and people wondering what's going on. So I felt like sharing about it would help other people at the same time, kind of one, maybe stop asking me questions (laughs) (laughs) in person. Um, And then just educate other people who have friends and family. Like at the same time I experienced a miscarriage last May, a good friend did as well. Um, And her experience was a little different and it's just been hard for her. So I thought by opening up and sharing, it would also help her a little bit. Yeah. I like to think of it as like, um, we're open for those who don't feel comfortable doing that because it's okay not to be open. Um, You know, that's why we lift up our voices sometimes a little bit louder, but it's funny that you say that you're really public on Instagram, but like more private in person. Cause that's how I am. I'm very introverted, but here I am like on Instagram sharing about my reproductive system. And so it's just, that always shocks people that I am so introverted and I am very, quiet and private in like some aspects um so I wonder what that is that must it must just be like you're tired of miscarriage and you just want to like scream it that is like just get it out there that way there aren't those awkward silences of people asking you when you're going to have kids and then you have what feels like minutes of silence while you're figuring out your answer it's the worst feeling you're like, do you want the long version of why or what's going on? Or do you want the truncated version? Either way, you're going to feel uncomfortable for asking. So yeah, <laughs> yeah basically. Um, well, again, thank you for being here. And I've gone ahead and hit record, um, but I can edit in and out if needed. I usually just like this to be a conversational piece and just kind of take it from there. It's not a super professional show or anything like that. It's just uh, meaningful conversations about loss. And so um, I would love it if you share, you know, you can share any part of your story or you can share brief part, long part. I don't, I'm here to listen. So whatever you're willing to share with me, I am here to listen. 
there are there I'll share the the whole thing I guess because it kind of it's my whole story um yeah I we got married in 2013 um and it was my second marriage I'd been previously married before but no children and we were dating about two years so I was 33 when we got married and I didn't want to wait long so we got engaged and got married six months later because I wanted to hurry up and have children (laughs) is the you know the irony of it I wanted to hurry up and have kids and so we got married in six months and like a month before the wedding I had my IUD removed and the my OB guy was like you know you could get pregnant right away when I take this out and you could be pregnant before your wedding and I was like that's fine I'm okay with that you know (laughs) and um lo and behold it didn't happen and a year after it didn't happen and I was starting to get a little disheartened because I was like okay you know I work I work in medicine so I know after a year of trying especially when you're like over 30 um it's kind of a, a big deal but I was like you know my period seems super regular I don't think we're doing anything wrong so I got the ovulation sticks and we did the sticks and I wasn't doing any of the temperature stuff and I got pregnant uh, two years, like almost two years to the day that we got married. I found out I was pregnant. And see, of course, now my dog's like wandering. (laughs) No, you're totally Um, fine. So uh, it was such a surprise. My period was like four days late, which isn't uncommon. Sometimes it's like two to three days late. And I was like, okay, if it's five days late, I'll take a pregnancy test in the morning. And I took the test and I literally like walked out of the bathroom because I was so used to the negative test. And you're like, whatever, like I'll come back in three minutes when it's negative and we'll just throw it away. Um, and I went back in and it was positive and I was like, holy crap. I was shocked. I was so shocked. And my husband and I were so excited and he had been like on the phone and I ran out of the bathroom. I was like, you need to get off the phone right now. Um, and he thought something bad happened. So I was super excited, but also nervous since I do work, you know, in the emergency department and I see, I see only the bad side. So I only see patients coming in with bleeding or miscarriages and that sort of thing. So I was like, okay, this is a very real possibility. I I felt that early on and we went for the first ultrasound and everything seemed okay. There was a heartbeat. It was like six weeks and a couple days. And the doctor was really, she didn't say anything like she was worried because the heartbeat was like a hundred. And she's like, you know, maybe the heart just started beating, you know, you're barely six weeks. It's fine. Let's just come back next week. We'll make sure everything looks okay. And I didn't really think anything of it in my mind. I, I started to Google a little bit and I was like, well, a hundred seems maybe okay. And we went back the next week and there was no heartbeat. So that in that time, my husband didn't come with me because I was like, oh, this is just a quick ultrasound. I don't have to, um, he doesn't need to be there. So I didn't have him come. And I remember the ultrasound tech was searching and searching. And all of a sudden she got very quiet and she kind of leaned back inside. And I immediately knew what that meant. And I'm like not a public crier. So I got very upset right away. But I was like trying to hold in my tears. And you know, when you're trying to hold in your tears and you <laughs> It just was a mess. So that day was really tough. And that was like the first time I realized like things could really kind of go downhill. Like things couldn't work out. Well, and you know, nothing really beats the first pregnancy. Um, I always think that 
you know, for people that have multiple losses, that first pregnancy and finding out that you're pregnant, then learning that your baby is no longer alive. Like those moments, they just stick out differently. It's almost like, even though you're aware that loss happens, it's this weird happiness that you've never felt before being pregnant for the first time. And then that's taken away from you. And so I still say that that's aside from my rainbow, finally being born, that's one of the best days of my life was finding out that I was pregnant for the first time because there was no better high of feeling that I was pregnant, you know, finally pregnant. Um, and then you come down from that and that sucks. Yeah, it was, it was pretty tough. And I remember driving home and I was crying and I was like, how am I going to tell, I didn't call him obviously, but he was home. And I was like, how am I going to tell him? Like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I just walked in the door and he was washing the dishes. So his back was to me and he goes, how's it going? And I was trying to talk, but instead I just started crying and then he turned around and like, he instantly knew and it was really tough, um, kind of managing that, but I didn't, after that miscarriage, you know, everyone says all the things like, well, at least, you know, you can get pregnant. At least you got pregnant. Um, and I decided at least it happened early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I had, I decided to have like, um, a DNC cause after two weeks, nothing still happened. Um, and so even my dad who he was like, you know, well, it's like cleaning everything out. <laughs> You're just getting it ready. You're going to get pregnant so fast now that you've cleaned everything out. And I just, at the time, I think I was just so shocked. It didn't really, I didn't really take in what people were saying as, and realize how hurtful they were until later when I looked back and I was like, oh, those things didn't help my healing process at all. Like right. at all. <laughs> so that was really hard. I had a friend who was also due like two weeks after me as well. And she had just announced around the same time I, well, we had told each other in our group of friends. And that was a very, very hard time for me to see her continuing on, you know, and having her baby and seeing him grow up and knowing that our kids would be the same age right now um and how everything just seemed like so perfect for her even even before she got pregnant everything always seemed perfect in her life like there's those people who life's just perfect and it continued to be perfect and I had a really hard time coping with that but I didn't ever really like seek treatment or read any books on it I just moved on because I thought well we'll just keep trying and I have to have to move on. And, you know, it was early. People are right. It was, it's better that it was early. So I should just move on and not, not be so emotional over it. And so I kind of pushed it down. Even the day I had my DNC, um, my um, sister-in-law came to town with her family because it was New Year's Eve was the day I had my DNC and they came to town and we picked them up from the airport that night and I helped make pizzas. Like I just didn't have a DNC earlier in the day and we celebrated the new year. So it was a very, I did some very looking back at the time I thought was the best thing to do. I don't think it was the best thing for me because it just harbored all this anxiety with the next pregnancy that finally came along. So moving on since my story's so long. <laughs> um, we kept trying on and off for a while. Um, we were living in Texas for a while and then we moved back um, to California. So we were apart for several months. So there was some periods of time where we weren't trying, but I was just so stubborn to seeking treatment because I really thought 
we'll get it right. We did it once before, we'll get it right. Um, so finally in 2018, I went and saw a fertility specialist. They did all the, you know, the basic stuff like a histosalpingogram and um, the semen analysis and basic blood tests and everything seemed okay. He was like, you know, you based on your lab tests, you likely have PCOS. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, I guess I'll, I'll deal with that. But I didn't really think I had it because, you know, based on my cursory knowledge that I had learned in school, because it's not something I really, you know, I have to medically manage in other people. I felt like I didn't have it. And I was like, okay, whatever, sure. <laughs> um, and so then after that, I still was really stubborn to moving forward. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do IUI and going on and on. So I waited another year. And in 2019, I finally decided to do our egg retrieval. And I still kind of went into it with the same mindset. Well, like, we'll just get some eggs and we'll make some embryos. And I didn't read any books and I didn't do any like research or take supplements. I took a prenatal vitamin like once a week. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, oh, I'm so good. I'm taking a prenatal <laughs> vitamin. Um, so we did that retrieval and I got a good amount of eggs, but I feel like with PCOS, you make a lot of really kind of crummy eggs that you can make a lot, but they just don't progress. So I also wasn't prepared for that, like the drop off or attrition rate where you're like, oh man, I got 20 something eggs and they call you and they're like, well, only this many fertilized and half that now only made it to day three and then half that made it to day five for PGS testing. Um, so that was, that was probably the next hardest thing, um, was actually learning how IVF really works, (laughs) like by going through it and not having read about it at all. Um, so that was really, that was hard. Um, I also have fibroids. And so before we could do a transfer, I had to do 30 days of suppression. So I was on medications. I don't even remember what they were now. I feel like I blocked it out, but essentially like induced menopause. So I was like sweating profusely at night and (laughs) it was terrible. So we finally get to our first transfer and I was so thrilled. And that was in December of 2019. And that transfer was a failure. It, there was just, it was negative. It wasn't even like a little positive. It was just negative. And that was like my next big shock. I didn't know that IVF didn't work sometimes. <laughs> I thought it always worked. Like you're doing IVF. Yes. You're going to have a baby soon. Congratulations. And I didn't realize that that was not the case. So I was really upset And I just, I was really upset for a long time about that. And I was like, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. This is so frustrating. Um, But, and then I was also like, well, shoot, I'm 38. I need to hurry up. So then I felt like this time pressure. Um, So we only had one normal embryo left. So last March we did transfer the embryo um, and we did get we were pregnant. Um, it had, there was slow rising betas. So I was very nervous right from the beginning because of that. Uh, we didn't know the, uh, gender. We, I didn't want to know cause I thought there's so much lack of surprise in this whole process that we decided that we would wait until birth to figure out or to learn, uh, what the gender was. <laughs> 
And so we had slow rising beta, so I was very nervous, but as they continued to rise and all of a sudden they seemed to catch up, I was really excited and I started having little bits of hope again. Um, so at six weeks we went for the ultrasound and there was a heartbeat, but once again, it was like 95 or hundred. And it literally like all of a sudden I had all the same feeling as before from the first miscarriage. And it just came so fast. Like I was already nervous going into it. I remember I was having to do like yoga breathing and just breathe through it. Like that ultrasound anxiety is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I was like, oh, this is happening again. This is exactly the same thing. And so the doctor was like, you know, you're gonna have to come back next week. We'll do another ultrasound. And I feel like I knew what it meant, but then, you know, I had friends who would say, you know, I had a dream about you and I had a dream that you had a baby. And so I'm like, you know what? That means this is gonna work. And they're very well-meaning and you're looking, you're like grasping for any little bit of hope. Uh, So we went back and there was no heartbeat. And so that, that was really hard again, once again, to like manage. And it was the beginning, you know, it was the the beginning of this pandemic and there was so much going on. Luckily, they let John be with me, my husband, um, because otherwise, I I don't know if I would have been able to like walk out of the building that day because it just, everything seemed like it was repeating itself just like the first time. And I thought, this won't, you know, once I started thinking about it, I'm like, maybe this won't be as bad as before, but it's just as bad. It's just as any loss is a loss and it's really hard. So we decided after that time, I got really impatient and I was calling my nurse and I was like, can I just, I just think I want to just, I didn't want to do a DNC because once they're, you know, they were concerned about maybe having Ashermans are creating problems and they would prefer I either allow time to pass or to do um, uh, medication. Side of tech? Yeah, side of tech. And I didn't even give myself enough time. I like stopped the meds and then two days later I called the doctor and I was like, okay, this isn't happening and I have to go to work on Monday. Like I was very resistant to like telling people at work and changing my schedule and taking time for myself. So I was like, it's Friday. I have to go to work Monday let's just do this. And I took like this very medical approach to the miscarriage and we did the cytotech and that honestly, it was very, very painful, but I think it helped me because the the first miscarriage, I just kind of went to sleep and woke up and, you know, everything was over. I didn't really have any pain. This was much more painful Um, but I felt like I told myself, I need to feel this pain because I was, I just wanted to feel something. It it was very strange, but I needed to feel that pain. So after that miscarriage, I once again, kind of, now I was really in high gear because I'm about to turn, I was about to turn 39 in June and I really wanted to, to be pregnant. It was like, becoming, you know, now obsessed, like, okay, well now first I was dragging my feet and now I'm the other way, just like not even allowing time to heal. So I started doing, um, acupuncture and I was doing herbs and I was taking all the supplements, like a meal's worth of supplements. (laughs) There was so, you know, I got, I got, it starts with the egg and I was, 
I was like, I have all of these. I'm over 35. I have PCOS. I have fibroids. So whatever the supplements were listed, I took all of them from each section. So it was a lot of supplements. Um, and I was taking my temperature just to, you know, see how my body was doing. And everyone was like, you need to wait at least two to three cycles to get pregnant. And I was like, well, of course, but you know, I can't get pregnant naturally anyways, because we've been trying for so long. And the first one was a surprise. And surprisingly that month in June, I had a surprise, like spontaneous pregnancy and crazy. yeah, <laughs> it was very, I was so shocked, very shocked. And once again, I was very nervous. Anytime there was a cramp, anytime there was spotting, you know, we got to six week ultrasound and everything was good at the seven week ultrasound. Everything was good. You know, we were, I was still going to my, um, RE, um, because, I didn't have an OB at the time because I'm just, a, <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't like the one I had, so I didn't have one. So I was just going to see my RE. And even though this was a spontaneous pregnancy, they were following me closely, um, letting me come in for weekly ultrasounds. And at nine weeks, I graduated and I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. And I was like, okay, we made it this far. And I decided to tell my family then. And then we made it to 10 weeks. And I, you know, started feeling a little more comfortable. I wasn't not telling people at work, but I wasn't hiding it either. Um, and then we had the, um, what's it called now? NIPT testing and everything came back normal. And that was probably my biggest concern, you know, and everything came back normal. And then we had the 13 week ultrasound for the nuchal translucency and that came back normal. And then I was like, well, shoot, we're in the clear. We made it to week 14 and I was like, Getting nervous again, though, I would ask my husband every day. I was like, should we just buy a Doppler? Maybe I should buy a Doppler. We need a Doppler, right? He's like, could you just enjoy being pregnant for five? Just enjoy it. You're pregnant today. Just enjoy it. And that was probably the hardest thing. Um, so I, I would every day wake up and Google Dopplers, and then I would suppress it, <laughs> and I wouldn't buy a Doppler. And um even one night at work, I snuck the ultrasound machine just for myself and took a look um, and uh, everything was fine. So I like breathed a sigh of relief. And then one day I was like 16 and five or 16 and six. I was, uh, had just finished working out and I was going to have lunch with a friend that I haven't seen almost the entire pregnancy. And she's my best friend and we have been, you know, she's been with me through this whole journey, so supportive once I got pregnant, I mean, she cried more than I did when she found out I was pregnant and I was going to her house to have lunch. And I, I remember this so vividly. I got out of the car and I was turning to give her her birthday gift because I had missed her birthday. And I remember driving there very quickly because I had to pee so bad. I remember like, oh my God, my bladder is so full. I have to pee so bad. And I turned around to grab her gift and turned back to see her. And all of a sudden it just felt like just a balloon breaking and then just water everywhere. And I could like feel it and hear it. Like even now I just can I feel it all over again. And I was like, oh my God. And she said, what happened? And I said, I think my water broke. And she said, no, no, maybe you just have to go to the bathroom. Maybe you just like wet yourself. And I was like, no, I still very distinctly have a full bladder. Like I still have to pee so bad, but you know, I think my water broke. And I was honestly surprised by how much water is there even at 17 weeks. Um, so I was just kind of in shock and I just started crying and I was like, I knew, 
I was just telling myself right then and there, I was like, I knew this was going to happen. Of course this would happen to me. Like, why would anything good happen to me? And I immediately started spiraling and she was like, you know, it's okay. I had a leak. Maybe it was just a leak. And I started getting mad. I'm like, this was not, this wasn't a leak. This was, you saw it. Like my pants are soaked. There's water like in your front, on your front sidewalk. So we're like rushing to the hospital. And um, unfortunately there was, it had broke and my cervix was dilated. Um, So we, you know, and it's 17 weeks, there's not really anything you can do. So we made the decision at that point, they offered me to have like a dilation and evacuation where I go to the OR and never see the baby. Um, We didn't even know the gender at the time. So I, after talking with my husband, we decided to deliver. Um, So I went up to L&D and then they started medicines once again, very, very painful. Um, And it was just such a surreal process. And I remember thinking that, you know, part of the reason I'd also decided to deliver is one, I wanted to see the baby, but two, I'm like, what if I do never get pregnant again? I I at least want the experience to say I've I've delivered, you know, as morbid as it seemed. Um, So everyone was preparing me, you know, I think expecting that it was going to you know, how the baby was going to look and how tiny the baby would be. And when I saw it, it turned out we had a boy um, and we named him Micah. And it was really very surreal. Um, It was so special to see him. And, you know, it made everything real that I was experiencing uh, but all, also like the most devastating thing I've ever experienced at the same time. And it was just such a host of emotions. Um, like I was afraid to hold him. He was, you know, so tiny and I, I was afraid to hold him and I might drop him. And, but it was really special. And they, um, they took pictures of us holding him and spending time with him. And um, they even did footprints for us, which was really, really special. Um, but that was definitely probably the hardest experience of my life. And then after that, I just remember, like, I never felt so, like, so sad. And I just, I remember coming home the next day and I got into bed immediately and just started crying and, you know, and my husband got in bed with me. He's very, also not a public crier. So like that's, I think when we let all our emotions out, we just both got in bed and kind of held each other and really cried for a long time. And I just remember thinking, I don't think I'm ever going to be happy again. Like I, this is it. Like I can't feel happy again. I wasn't like thinking of harming myself or anything, but I definitely just thought I'm just not going to be happy ever again. Like how, how do you recover from this? How, how can you be happy you know, and I was feeling like anger and jealousy and like something I was like, you know, how, why did I deserve this? What have I done wrong? And then I start, you know, thinking of all the things I did wrong. And that's what I spent like the next few days. Well, maybe it's because I worked out that day. Maybe it was because I went and, you know, I did have a turkey sandwich. Maybe I didn't heat the meat up enough. Like you just start second guessing every single thing you did. And that was the first thing that everyone kept telling me to stop doing. 
was to stop second guessing. Um, the other thing that nobody tells you and is that when you, after you deliver, especially when you're induced, they give you Pitocin and then that Pitocin stimulates, you know, oxytocin, which your brain would normally release after delivering. Um, so in a few days I started making milk, which was pretty hard. Um, and I called my sister and told her about it. And I was like, I'm like leaking milk everywhere. And this is ridiculous. Like to add insult to injury. And my sister said, well, why don't you donate the milk? Cause her friend was a NICU nurse. And I was immediately I was like, that's no, absolutely not. I got mad at her for suggesting it. But then after another day, um, I actually went to acupuncture and she also brought it up and I said, okay, if two people are bringing this up, maybe I should do something. So um, I know you're not supposed to share breast pumps, but <laughs> so I had a breast pump that was lent to me um, and I did, you know, I wasn't making a ton of milk, but I made enough that I could um, to donate. Uh, and that I felt like I could turn at least something really negative into a positive situation for me. And like, at least Micah's life wasn't meaningless completely. And I could, you know, offer something to someone else's, you know, premature infant as well. Um, so that helped as well. But I just recently started, um, therapy, like as in today, recently. <laughs> and therapy is nice, but it's, it's like, it brings it all up and it's, it almost feels like a job to dig into your trauma. <laughs> like it's yeah, not fun. No, it, it's not. And today, you know, it was like the introductory day. So it's kind of like, you know, kind of get your story out there. And luckily they had you do this really long intake form before where I was able to type it out mm -hmm. so she could read it in advance. And, but still just getting into it, I had a lot of like anxiety. And I think that's been the hardest thing with this loss. And I honestly think they're probably compounded because I never did anything to address it before that my anxiety is just getting worse and worse with each pregnancy and I remember the first like night I had to go back to work I had a panic attack and I think I've had one panic attack in my life otherwise besides that and I, I worry about everything like my dog getting out and getting hit by a car my cat getting out and run roaming into the canyon or something so constantly obsessed about things that could but probably won't happen um and that's been the hardest thing is dealing with that anxiety. Uh, so I finally, and I was also just not feeling myself. So I talked with my primary doctor and I started um, medication because I said, I think, I think I need some help for a little bit because this is just becoming too much. And it's been about a month and that's been helping significantly. Um, and then I think being able to talk it over, I found a therapist that specializes in fertility and loss. So it was like a really good fit. Um, and she's been through it herself, which was a really, you know, that it helps to have someone who can relate as opposed to a therapist that's like, let's, let's think of the positive things. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's been, it's still ongoing, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling some hope now, I guess I should say. I'm not so nervous. That's good. 
there's still a little bit of anxiety with getting pregnant again. So I don't know if that ever goes away, to be honest. You know, I think that we think that time makes it better, but you're always going to be anxious after what you've been through. And that's totally valid. Yeah, I think so. I think if it's, it's just learning, I think how to manage that, uh, those feelings. Um, I'm actually feeling slightly hopeful about getting pregnant again. We did a retrieval in February and that one went well. Um, and so we had actually a really good number of embryos, much better this time because I took all my supplements and took care of my body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I also stopped working night shift. Um, so I tried to just do as much as I felt I could do. Um, and after we got our embryos and they were frozen, I was like, okay, well, I'm not even thinking about getting pregnant. And now I'm like, okay, I think we can address, you know, we can start looking at like transfer dates. So that's progress. <laughs> yeah, that is progress. Do you think that experiencing loss has made you more empathetic or um, better, like in the emergency room? Um, in my experience with loss, in my second loss, I had to go to the emergency room and I felt like nobody knew what miscarriage looked like. And I'm assuming because they hadn't been through it because you're taught very, you know, basic things, um, kind of like you were talking about with what you knew about PCOS. And so, um, I wonder how that plays a part in like how you interact with patients that have vaginal bleeding or, you know, are anxious and pregnant or anything like that. Oh yeah. It's made a huge difference in how I interact. I feel like I'm fiercely protective of all any, any patient that comes in with vaginal bleeding. I am like, for, for a while, I couldn't see them because it was just too hard. But, you know, sometimes you just can't avoid that. It's just who's available and when they come in. Um, but it definitely has changed how I, I interact. Like, I definitely want to convey to them that they are cared for, that their concerns are valid, that their fears are valid. Um, and then if we do have to have the conversation that and unfortunately I've had to like have the conversation that, you know, there's no heartbeat. I'm still working. It, it's a very, it's such a hard conversation to have with somebody, um, especially after you've also been through that. Um, but I'm working on just, you know, conveying it with as much care and empathy as possible. And then allowing them to ask all the questions they want afterwards um, spending time with them, allowing them time, uh, to, you know, cry and grieve. Um, and sometimes what that means is just leaving the room quickly, especially if they don't have questions, because I know like for me, I wanted just to be someone to be out of the room so I could have my private cry, you know? Um, so I allow that. And then I also make sure if I let the nurses know when, you know, they're being dis before discharge, after I've just told them, I said, you know, give them a few minutes. You know, I just had to tell them, you know, that, you know, there's, there's no heartbeat or I had to explain whatever. And so I, I try to make sure that as much as it is, and especially because where I work is very, very busy um, and sometimes chaotic. I try to make it as helpful as possible. And actually one of my um, colleagues who had also had suffered a miscarriage at uh, the same time I did last year. Just before all that, we were starting on making like a, a cart that would offer resources 
um, and things for patients who've had miscarriages. And then, you know, the pandemic hit and that kind of got put on hold. But once things normalize again, uh, someday, it's something I definitely want to work on is having more resources and educating um, my fellow colleagues on, you know, managing and speaking with patients and, and kind of dealing with it. Because I feel, I feel like most of our female colleagues, most of them are mothers or have experienced loss. So they're, they're pretty capable, but it's the men, you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes hear their comments and I do, I, I've started correcting them. Like, even if we're just sitting in the back and they make a comment, you know, I try to correct them and remind them and it's, it's a constant learning process. Yeah. Well, and um, I did that after my loss, I reached out to the emergency department. Like I found an email of uh, an admin or something of another that way um, I reached out and I asked if like, I could just talk with them to educate them of what miscarriage looked like that I had been through it naturally twice. And my experience was really bad and their care could be improved. And I would just really like to educate them and I never heard back. And I, I mean, I came from a real, like a very nicely worded email, but um, I think that that's great that you, you know, you hear what people say and you correct them or you help educate them. It's, I think that there should definitely be better education on what miscarriage looks like, even in the first trimester. I think that that's such a big misconception. Um, Yeah. I, I know whenever I went in there bleeding at six weeks, um, I'm bleeding a lot at six weeks. Like I was hemorrhaging from taking Cytotec and they acted like it was like my period. I mean, like I had blood all over my clothes and nobody, nobody even offered me a pad or anything. Like they were just like, Oh, they were just like, wait for OB to get here. And it was like four hours later. It's insane. Um, And so I know, you know, not every emergency Room. So I really like hearing your, you know, the positive that your story brings into your work and that there are emergency rooms with staff that are equipped to handle women with miscarriage because often enough I hear stories like mine and I don't want to scare people that that's like how it is everywhere because it's not. I agree. I feel like it's, it's hard. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot that goes into it in terms of, you know, it's the way that some ERs are set up and everything, but I do feel like we have to just the same way. I feel like whenever there's a a complaint with a man as to anything with their genitalia or anything, everyone jumps so quick because the man has a problem with his stuff. Right. And if there's any female complaint, I always feel like, Oh, come on. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, so I'm, I'm really trying, at least in my department, to help uh, push or promote, you know, making the experience better. And we've definitely had some conversations because there have been some situations where, unfortunately, like patients have come in who were like in my situation when I was like 16, 17 weeks. And there was, unfortunately, like absolutely no p- place to see the patient, but nobody also really, who knows, maybe made an effort and then there, you know, the patient had a bad experience and was in the public bathroom and, you know, miscarried baby or, you know, so 
that's my thing. Whenever I see a check-in complaint and it says like vaginal bleeding and pregnancy, I try to see them right away, find out how far along they are, how we can facilitate the process for them, um, and kind of set expectations because the ER can be like a really scary place. Um, and it's a chaotic place and there's so much going on and everything, you know, and you're worried about yourself because the, the thing you want the most, something's happening and you don't know what's going on. So I totally yeah. get how it's hard. It's a hard experience to have to go to the emergency room. Yeah, no, completely. And you said something before um, about your anxiety after the loss of your son and like the thoughts with your dogs or like the, the control it's, it's all control. And that made me think like, those are intrusive thoughts. And that's like what a, a mom has, like that's whenever you're experiencing postpartum anxiety and depression, they ask you about the intrusive thoughts. And I think that that's something along with the milk coming in, um, that isn't well-prepared for, especially in the second trimester loss is that you're going to experience lactation in some cases mm-hmm. and that you're going to have all these hormones of a mom without a baby. And mm-hmm. that's, I think that has to be the hardest part. Um, so I just want to validate that that's what those feelings are is those mom feelings. Um, it's just misplaced and you don't have you don't have a baby to have those intrusive thoughts about. So you're having them about your animals and that's, or people that you love or things that you can control. And I think that that, um, you know, that's your way of coping with it. And so, you know, you're not a public crier and things like that, but I, um, my therapist tells me that because I am not a public crier or because I'm not like a overly super affectionate person that I have developed coping mechanisms. And so I see a lot of that, like what my therapist tells me in you, because I'm very similar in that way. (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely do. I'm like a kind of like, and some of the coping mechanisms have helped for me personally, not related to loss, but because of my job, you sometimes you've got to move on, even if something happens. And that's, been hard because I've been like, okay, something really tragic happened. And now there's, you know, 30 more people to be seen. So let's keep moving. So I've learned to really just like stuff and go on like a lot of stuffing down. Um, yeah. So I'm working on that without also becoming so unstuffed, I guess. I don't know yeah. that, <laughs> that I, you know, that I, I, I can't function. So, but I think I think, you know, starting this new therapy journey is really going to help a lot. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I didn't even ask what the, um, like, what is it like going through IVF and pregnancy and miscarriage while in a pandemic, but working a job that you're on the front lines, like you are exposed to the public and you're in, you know, dangerous situations all the time time um it was hard first of all I was afraid of getting COVID um and then yeah it was I don't know I think I just kind of like well this is what I have to do I have to go to work I can't not go to work so that was sort of my mindset but I was still very anxious when I go into a room and maybe a patient didn't have their mask on even though I'm like 
covered from head to toe. Then when we started, you know, when a lot of places were running low on supplies and they were asking us to do things like reuse our masks, it made me very anxious. And I used to shower at work, which I like would never do otherwise because it's just, I don't know, you're in public and it's a cold locker room bathroom, but I would shower and <laughs> rinse off at work before coming home. So there was a lot of that anxiety of just the unknown, what was going on, especially early on, coupled with, you know, this, the pregnancy and IVF. And once they started not allowing like your partner to come to appointments, that made it that much harder. Um, and then initially I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to even go in and get treatment because some of the screening questions were like, have you been in close contact with anyone with COVID in the last 14 days? And I'm like, yes, of course I have. <laughs> I very much so have. Um, and so I would always have to preempt it with like, but yes, I was in full PPE and it was a very short time or, you know, um, so I was always afraid they'd say, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come to this appointment or, you know, you're not welcome here. I don't know. Um, so there was that, that sort of, frustration or not frustration, I guess, fear as well, um, yeah. that I wouldn't be allowed to continue on with treatment because of so much unknown. But yeah, I feel like your job affects a lot of your fertility journey, like in so many different ways, Yeah, you know, just, and that kind of sucks, but it's also, you know, it's really great work that you're doing. I can't even imagine how difficult the last year has been, you know, from, you know, a loss standpoint and then add in a pandemic. Yeah, I know it's been insane and it's been a a insane year and hopefully, but you know, it definitely has forced me to grow emotionally, like force myself to do the hard things if I actually want to be like a functioning adult. <laughs> I could choose not to and, you know, stay in bed all day. And there's still days where I, I just give in and I try not to beat myself up for making the decision to not do anything or really take it easy. Because um, that's the other thing I tend to like, you know, disparage myself like, oh my gosh, you're a terrible person for not getting out of bed today or for not working out today or you didn't do the dishes and you should really help more around the house. I'm learning just to not beat myself up. It's going to be what it's going to be. And I need to take care of myself first. And that's probably the biggest thing that this has all taught me is to really take care of myself emotionally so I can function. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that that's great advice. Well, Tessa, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was great to talk to you. I'm glad that you were up for chatting and just sharing so openly. Thank you very much.